Good morning and welcome to First Colony. I'm, I'm so glad all of you are here today. As we, as we continue to enter into this new year together, we're, we're leaning into this idea. This, we're in the middle of a series called First Things First. And, and I want to begin today by asking you to think about, about this idea, this principle. See if this is true for you. This idea that, that what we do determines who we become. What we do determines who we become. Uh, some of you know this about me, but uh, I enjoy uh, running. And so a couple times a week I'll get up in the morning and I'll go, I'll go for a morning, morning run just, just for exercise. And when our, our family moved here last year, uh, I was looking for a place. Like, you know, where are the good places around town to go for a run? And I was excited when I found Memorial Park over here at university. Some of you know about this. There's a great area, some great trails over there. There's some water. There's some trees. Sometimes in the morning you'll see deer out there. It's just really beautiful and amazing that it's right here in our city. And I, I love going over there to run uh, in the mornings. And fast forward to it's the weekend before Thanksgiving, and I'm, I'm driving over on a Saturday morning to go for a run. And as I'm driving down the street, I'm, I'm realizing, like, something's going on. You know, something's happening. Uh, there's flags up everywhere. I see balloons. I pull into the parking lot. There's vendors. And, and then it hits me. Oh, yeah, it's the weekend before Thanksgiving. I bet they're doing a turkey trot. You know, that, that's great. I pull in. I'm thinking, you know, I've already planned to run this morning. I might as well go ahead and get a t-shirt and a medal for all of my hard work. So I walk over to the table and I sign up. I get my registration packet. And then I remember to call my wife to make sure we don't have anything planned for the day. And, and I'm good. So I'm good to go. And I get in line. And sure enough, they blow the horn. And, and here we go. And, and some of you know what this is like. Some of you, you're, you you've run these kind of races. I don't know if this is true for you. It's true for me. Uh, I know when I start the race, like, I'm not going to win the race. But I do want to pick out some people I can beat, you know. And uh, I'm not going to beat, like, the 17-year-old guy that just stepped out of, you know, Muscle Magazine. I'm not going to beat the, the tall, lanky guy that's going to, you know, training for the Boston Marathon. That's not, that's not my league. Um, I need that, you know, guy that's pushing 102 that I can feel good about. <laughs> you know, I'm looking for the dad running with his daughter. I'm going to get by them, you know. Um, and so I'm running the race, and I'm picking off people and kind of start at the back, and I'm weaving and making my way forward and get about halfway through the race course. And, and I see this, uh, these young people ahead of me, a young couple, young married couple. And, and I can tell they're young, and I'm, I'm kind of figuring out, you know, you kind of do this. You kind of figure out who people are and, and kind of if there's relationships going on, you know, how they're connected. And I think, I think these guys are married. They, they're probably half my age. Uh, it'd be really amazing if I could beat them, you know, this little inner dialogue going on. And, and I can tell pretty quickly, okay, she's the runner. You know, the husband, he's just along for the ride. And, uh, you know, halfway through, he's kind of fading. And he kind of falls back, and she's going on. I'm thinking, perfect. So I take him. Like, I, he's in the dust now. You know, I passed this joker. And I'm moving on, and I got my eyes set on her. I'm thinking, I, I think by the end of the race, I can catch up to her. And sure enough, you know, we're getting around mile four, mile five. And, and I, I come up behind her, and I, and I pass her. Well, she sees that, and she thinks, uh-uh, and she passes me. I don't know this woman, by the way, but, but, but then I pass her, and then she passes me, and, and now she's got a pretty good lead on me. She's probably 25, 50 yards ahead of me, and I can see in the distance, there's the, there's the finish line, and there's a hill right before the finish line, and I'm thinking, you know what? 
Most people, at the end of the race, you get to a big hill like this, you slow down, you're tired. I bet I can take her. And, you know, if I turn on the jets, here's my opportunity. And sure enough, we, we hit that hill, and I'm just pushing as hard as I can. And I get right up to her, and I pass her. And she, then she passes me, and then I pass her, and she passes me. And then we cross the finish line, and I pass her, and I beat the lady pushing the double stroller. Yes. <laughs> it was an amazing moment in my life. Uh, so here's the point. Um, <laughs> what we do determines who we become. And uh, I guess because I get up, and, and I'm not very fast, but because I get up and I run a couple of times a week, I'm a runner. I've got a medal to prove it. I've got a victory against a mom with a double stroller to prove it. <laughs> what we do determines, for better or for worse, right, who we become. That's true for us individually. We see this principle play out all over, all over our lives. But that's also true for us collectively. And I think it's important for us from time to time to push pause on the busyness of our lives and just think about that reality. Like, who are we becoming? This is, a, this is the problem that a lot of us are up against right now, especially as we begin the new year. Be because we realize this principle is true. What you do determines who you become. What you do intentionally or unintentionally, the decisions that you make on a regular basis, intentionally or unintentionally, they determine who you become. And some of us have realized, we've looked up and we realize we're in a very unhealthy place. Well, how did you get there? What you do determines who you become. That's true for us in our personal lives. It's also true for us as a church. And I just wonder what it, what it means for us to think about that truth. Who are we? Who are we becoming? Who do we want to become? What do we need to be doing? What are the practices? What are the things that we want to be doing over and over again to shape us and form us and mold us and help us become who it is that we really want to become? Well, the good news is that uh, in a letter written by a man named Luke, the letter called Acts, we have this beautiful picture of what the church looked like at the very beginning. And we get a snapshot of some of the things that they did that helped them become who it is that, that they became. And this morning what I want to do is take us back to that moment, take us back to the very beginning, and ask you to look at this beautiful picture that Luke, the author of this letter, gives us. If you have your Bible or if you have a Bible app on your device this morning, I want to invite open to, to Acts chapter 2. We talked about this last week, but the church begins in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus had sent his disciples there to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and they did. And when the Holy Spirit came, they were able to speak in all these different languages. And that was important because this was Pentecost. People had gathered from all over the known world into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the harvest. And so people are, are there from all over, and now the Holy Spirit has come on the disciples of Jesus. And they're preaching the gospel. They're telling the gospel story, the good news about the great love of God revealed in Jesus. And everyone who was there that day experienced something miraculous. They heard this story. They heard this message in their own native language. Now, the disciples, they didn't know how to speak these languages, but the, the Holy Spirit was, was doing this in them and through them so that everyone there, they, there that day understood the message 
of Jesus. Peter steps forward and he tells them, let me tell you the story. Most of you know what's happened. You've been here. You've seen this. You've witnessed this. But Jesus of Nazareth, who you crucified, he was God's son, God's Messiah. He was buried in a borrowed tomb for three days and then God raised him up again. And now he has ascended and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that day, some 3,000 people were pierced, cut to the heart with that message of the great love of God revealed in Jesus. And they were baptized in his name that day. What happened next? This is what's amazing. Luke tells us exactly what happens next. What happens when people believe in Jesus? What happens when people confess Jesus as Lord? We get down into Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and Luke tells us what happens next. He describes the early church. And in Acts 2.42, he writes, all the believers, all those who were baptized, all those who have confessed that Jesus is Lord, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Okay, I want to unpack that in just a moment. But before we do, I want you to notice this. Do you see what's happened here? What, is, what does the church do in the very beginning? They, they gathered in fact, I don't know if you know this. Some of you probably do, but that's what the church literally means. The word church in the original language, in the Greek language, is that word ekklesia, and it literally means gathering. In fact, when the Bible was, was first translated into English from the Greek language, William Tyndale, he didn't use the word church. You know what word he used? In his translation, he used the word congregation. Because he was trying as best he could to, to grab on to an English word that conveyed the, the meaning of this Greek word. It's the Greek word ekklesia. And as far as he could tell, the best word he could come up with to describe what this word meant was the word congregation. It's a, a gathering of people, an assembling of people. This is what the word church literally means. Now, our, our Bible translators, they do an amazing and a wonderful job in trying to put into the English language as best they can an, an accurate picture, description, translation of the original language. But the tragedy, I think... For, for so many of our English Bibles today, and using this word church, is that it's, it's missed out on this original meaning. That word church actually comes from, from a German word. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to mispronounce it, but it's something like kirche. And that comes from a Latin word, basilica. And both those words are actual, the, 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 what they mean, it actually means like a location or a building or a place to meet. And the tragedy in that is that somewhere along the way, the church stopped being a movement and it became a location. Somewhere along the way, the church stopped being about the people and it became about a place. But what we see is that in the very beginning, when people came to faith in Jesus, this ecclesia of Jesus, what did they do? They came together together. And they gather together. And that's important for you to know because there's a sense in which you can lock the doors to a church, but you cannot lock the doors to the ecclesia of Jesus. These disciples in Jesus, this ecclesia, this gathering of people who believed in Jesus, they gathered together. And what did they do? Luke tells us. We read it. Let's read it again. Verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. This is what it looks like when the church 
gathers. When we gather, we devote ourselves to what? To apostolic teaching. Well, what is that? Uh, these early Christians, they were, they were hearing the teachings of Jesus from these people who had been with Jesus for three years, who had sat at his feet. And now they're rethinking everything they heard him say, everything they saw him do, everything they experienced with him during those three years. They're rethinking all of it through the lens of the, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And they're passing on to these early believers the very same things that Jesus had taught them. And the really amazing thing is that you and I have access to the same apostolic teaching. In fact, your New Testament, your Bible, it is filled with, in fact, it's entirely made up with, apostolic teaching, the teachings of Jesus from his earliest apostles. What does the church do when it gathers? We devote ourselves to apostolic teaching, to the teachings of Jesus. And we devote ourselves to fellowship. And, and again, I love the original language here because the word for fellowship in Greek is that word koinonia. And, and, and there's a sense in which it means absolutely that we share the things that we have, but it's, it's more than that. It's not just sharing what we have. It's, it's sharing everything we are. It's sharing ourselves with one another. If you've ever been a part of a family, you've got a sense of koinonia, right? You know what it's like to, to wake up in the morning and see each other before you brush your teeth or brush your hair. You know what it's like to, to, to get mad at each other, to celebrate with each other, to experience the highs of life together, to cry together when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You know what it's like to forgive one another? Like this is the sense of the, the, the koinonia that God wants for his church, for, for believers in Jesus, for his ecclesia to have this kind of fellowship. It's sharing what we have, but it's so much more. It's sharing all that we are, all of ourselves with one another. This is what it means to be a part of the family of God. When we gather, we devote ourselves to fellowship and we devote ourselves to the breaking of bread. And I love that in the New Living Translation, in parentheses, it puts including the Lord's Supper. Scholars agree this is almost certainly what Luke had in mind when he coined this phrase, the breaking of bread. They would come together and they would eat together, absolutely. But they would also celebrate the, the body of Christ given for us, the blood of Christ poured out for us, just like we just did a few moments ago. And they would do this at every table, at every meal, every day. They would celebrate it as often as they could. And, and I'll confess, I really didn't understand that until a few years ago. In 2018, my wife Alicia and I, we got to go to Israel and and this whole thing just came alive for me in a new way. Some of you have been there, so you know this. What was so amazing, and it wasn't even, no one even pointed this out. It was, just, it was just there. Like at every single meal, every single table, every lunch, every dinner that we had in Israel, there was bread and there was wine. There was the body of Christ and there was the blood of Christ. And there it was. God, once again, taking something ordinary and transforming it into something extraordinary. Taking something that was common at every table, for every meal, with every family. And giving it new meaning, new weight, new significance. And for the early church, they couldn't eat a meal. They couldn't break bread together. And not remember Jesus. And not break the bread and remember the body of Christ. Not take the cup and remember 
the blood of Christ poured out for them. Every table for them became a communion table. When we gather, we devote ourselves to the breaking of bread and we devote ourselves to prayer. What do believers in Jesus do? We pray. Why? Well, you know why. Because. Because we trust Jesus. We trust in Jesus. And we believe that when we pray, we believe a lot of things, but let me give you two. We believe that we have the opportunity to affect and to change the mind of God. We believe that. And we believe every time we pray, God changes us. And when these first believers in Jesus gather together to pray, what do they pray? You keep reading through the story of the church. You keep reading through, through the New Testament letters. And you see the prayers that we have from these early believers in Jesus. And absolutely, they, they pray for those who are sick. They pray for those who are in prison. They pray for those who are in need. But you know what else they do? When they pray, they retell the gospel story. The story of Jesus. When they pray, they worship Jesus in adoration and praise. They pray full of faith. Believing that God could and God would, and in fact God does, work all things together for our good and for his ultimate glory. When we gather together, we devote ourselves as believers, as the ecclesia, the gathering of Jesus' followers, we devote ourselves to prayer. The early church, when they gathered together, they devoted themselves to these things. And then Luke tells us what happens in verse 43, and I love this. Luke writes, a deep sense of awe came over all of them. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And, and all the believers, they, they met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God. And enjoying the goodwill of all the people. This is what the church did. They gathered. And as they gathered together, you know what happened? They changed the world. In fact, you and I are here today because these believers gathered. The ecclesia of Jesus came together. And you know how they changed the world? They changed the world with their love. You think about how what you do affects who you become. As these early believers in Jesus devoted themselves to the teachings of Jesus, to communion, to fellowship, to prayer, you know what happened? The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of love, was being cultivated in them individually and collectively as the church of Jesus Christ. And that love changed the world. You know, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I love that. I was thinking about him this week as this message was coming together, remembering something he once wrote in his book, Strength to Love. Martin Luther King Jr. once wrote, The greatest of all virtues is love. 
Here we find the true meaning of the Christian faith and of the cross. Calvary is a telescope through which we look into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking into time. Out of the hugeness of his generosity, God allowed his only begotten son to die that we may live. By uniting yourselves with Christ and your brothers through love, you will be able to matriculate in the university of eternal life. In a world depending on force, coercive tyranny, and bloody violence, you are challenged to follow the way of love. You will then discover that unarmed love is the most powerful force in all the world. These early Christians, they gathered in love. Their example, the sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross. They saw the power of unarmed love. And the fruit of the spirit of love was formed in them as they gathered and it changed the world. Now some people say they believe in God but they don't need the church. But gathering with God's church is exactly what people who believe in God do. This is what it means. This is what it looks like to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ, we gather. That's what we do. We gather. And then Luke adds in the last verse there what God does. He writes, each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. You see, what we do determines who we become. Just like what you do determines who you become. So if you would allow me permission to just, just gently ask you that question. Who are you becoming? We're always becoming. It doesn't matter if you're 16 or 60. We're always becoming. You're never not becoming. The question isn't are you becoming. The question is who are you becoming? And is it who you want to become? What do you need to do? What do you need to change to become who it is that you want to become? That first church, after it started in Jerusalem, you may know this, but persecution very quickly broke out. It started with Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who wanted to put an end to anyone that was putting forth this notion that Jesus of Nazareth really was God's Messiah. They took it so far that they actually killed one of the early leaders in the church, a man by the name of Stephen. They stoned him to death. After that moment, you can imagine what happened. The church in Jerusalem scattered. But what those Jewish leaders could have never known and never seen coming was something that was unbelievable. It started in Judea, and then it happened again in Samaria, and then they saw it on the way to Ethiopia, and then there it was in Greece, and then there it was again in Turkey. And before you knew it, all over the known world, it was popping up, these gatherings of believers in Jesus, 
who were devoting themselves to the teachings of Jesus, devoting themselves to fellowship, devoting themselves to communion, devoting themselves to prayer and changing the world with their love, by their love, as the church spread all across the known world. They gathered together. And these spiritual practices, these things that they did every time they gathered together, it molded them and shaped them and transformed them into, well, into the church, into the people of God. This is what it means to be a part of God's church, to be a part of God's ecclesia. It means that we're a part of a gathering, a community, a family of believers At First Colony Church of Christ, we say it this way. We want to gather in large groups to praise like we've done this morning. Absolutely. We also want to to gather in smaller groups to connect. And many of you, you're part of a class. You're part of a small group. Praise God. I'm so glad for that. If you're not, just so you know, in two weeks we'll have the next Find Your Place, a chance for you to find a small group. It's so important that everyone in this church is a part of a gathering, a large gathering, a small gathering of believers in Jesus. This is how we're shaped. This is how we're formed. This is how we become who God wants us to become as his ecclesia, as his church. You see, whenever we gather together with believers in Jesus, you know what happens? We become more and more like Jesus. And this is God's desire for you. It's God's desire for me that we gather together. We gather together so we can become more and more like his son, the image of God in us. So this morning, I just want to ask you, because I know how this works, and I know how this is. Are you, are you someone who has become content with attending church? Or do you want to be a part of the ecclesia of Jesus? Are you someone who gravitates toward just checking the box and showing up to a place at a certain location at a certain time? Are you, do you, or do you want to be a part of the ecclesia of Jesus? To be a part of the movement of God, a group of people on mission with God, for God, in this world, to share the great good news of the great love of God revealed in Jesus at the cross with everyone, everywhere. You see, here in this place, I believe this is true. This is my prayer. I think this is our prayer. We don't want to be just another church. No, we want to be the ecclesia of Jesus. We want to be a gathering of people who are becoming more and more like Jesus. And we do that because every time we gather, we are devoting ourselves to the teachings of Jesus, devoting ourselves to fellowship, devoting ourselves to communion, devoting ourselves to prayer, devoting ourselves to becoming more and more and more like our Savior.